Hey y'all, this is Jessica. This is Amy. And we are 1096 Crime Chicks. Yay! This is episode two. Yes. Which is going to be about the murder of Bill List. Yes, this is Jessica's episode. Yes, I was really excited when I found this story a few years ago on the Houston Chronicle, but pretty amazed at how we didn't, we couldn't find anything. We couldn't find a lot of information on it. It wasn't a very public case. I'm not sure why but we were limited with resources but we put together what we could yes yeah we like jessica said we found it a couple years ago three or four years ago actually and then i'm so obsessed with podcasts yes amy is subscribed to 46 as of today she counted them yes so um we haven't heard it and so we thought well why don't we do the bill list murder but then it took forever to try to find it Yes. So. And then when we realized there was a connection to Carla Faye Tucker, we knew this had to be episode two. Right. And that way we could, um, you know, connect the two because there is a connection you guys will find later on in the episode, uh, yeah. which was really interesting. So this story is about the murder of Bill List. Um, he was a multimillionaire who owned a trailer company and built a huge mansion in Galveston on the Galveston Bay. Right. And he would go pick up these uh, homeless, drug-addicted young boys on Westheimer out in Houston and bring them to his house so that they could live there. But it was not free. No. So um, this is our story about Bill List. I hope you guys enjoy it. And we're going to go ahead and get started. Sounds good. All right. So the mansion at 3300 Toddville Road was as big as a child's fantasy. Back to the edge of Galveston's Bay's brown water, the brick and iron building rose three stories out of the otherwise middle-class neighborhood of unremarkable stilted bayfront homes. It was a grotesque moment to the success of Bill Liss, the businessman who built it and lived there with his houseboys. One of the houseboys he picked up was a young man by the name of Smiley. Yes. And we have a lot of information on Smiley. We found more on him than pretty much anybody else. Right. So... At 19, Smalley was a street kid who had continuously collided, but never connected with the world outside of his own. That afternoon, in the explosion of a gun, the world finally latched onto him. He wasn't always Smalley. That was a name he got sometime early in his two years on the streets. He had been born Elbert Irvin Homan in Pasadena, Texas. I don't blame him. <laughs> I changed the name too. <laughs> his mother would say her parents arranged the marriage to Smiley's father when she was 13. By the time she was 16, Smiley had been born. Smiley's father and mother split up when Smiley was young, and he remembered little of the man. He remembers more about the three stepfathers, although he would say he had a father-son type relationship with none of them. In fact, the relationships were frequently hostile. He hopped from school to school during the succession of stepfathers, and at each one he was known for making trouble. He couldn't get along with all the other kids, and both he and his mother lost count of the number of fights he was in. The accident, when he was 14, made things worse. A car barreled over him as he was helping a freeway accident victim out of another car. His legs and pelvis were crushed, and when his mother was told Smiley was in Ben Taub Hospital, she was also told to make funeral arrangements for him. That's so sad. That is sad, because he was actually trying to help somebody. Yeah. Uh, His survival was regarded both by Smiley and his mother as a divine sign. Quote, we knew God had spared him for a reason, his mother said. She hoped it also meant a change in Smiley's demeanor. It did not. After months in the hospital and months more of therapy at home, Smiley returned to school with a limp and a chip on his shoulder. The fights became more frequent, 
He said he was teased about the limp, and he began getting drunk and smoking dope, and he dropped out of school at 15. He failed with halfway houses and relatives and started with heroin and speed. At 17, after living with girlfriends and an uncle, he came to the Covenant House, a nonprofit home for runaways, throwaways, and street kids, a block off the lower Westheimer Strip in the Montrose area of Houston. It's so sad that they label them as runaways and throwaways. Yes. I mean, that's, you know, really sad that someone would even call their child or call a child a throwaway. I know. You know? It's really sad. It is sad. More than any place in the city, the 10-block stretch of Westheimer was home to the young homeless. It was a series of gay and straight clubs, massage parlors, strip joints, flop houses, vacant buildings, and hangouts. Teenage boys and girls walked the streets selling acid, pot, meth, and themselves. Yeah. Yeah, that's just, it's so sad. That is so sad. It was a vicious environment where there was no real-life friends when it came to trust, where winos were rolled for cigarettes and tricks for their cash. At night, the streets were bumper to bumper with two-mile-per-hour traffic of gawkers and buyers. When the sun went down, the neon lights and portable lights went up. The kids on the sidewalks started looking for something to deal or something to hustle. If they failed, it meant dumpster diving for food and a day without a high. But in the deprivation of substance, there was a geyser of dreams. Everybody had their dreams of wealth or fame, of rising out of it as sort of a hero to the ones who remained. There were few heroes, though. Most of the street's kids lacked either the luck or support of willingness to work to climb out, and many dreamed only of finding a sugar daddy to take care of them and give them what they had never known. It's a big fantasy, Smiley told an acquaintance, but it keeps you waking up in the morning. Covenant House was located near Lower Westheimer on purpose. Those who built it knew the street's influence would invade it, but they also knew it was the best place in town to get that type of kids that they were trying to help. Smiley showed up there after a relative told him about it. It sounded great, he thought. The place would give him shelter, find him a job, and ultimately make him independent. He was sure of it. He wanted to break with the past, and this was his chance to start again. He was going to quit heroin and speed and straighten out his life. Smiley thought, all my life I've wanted to be something great, a judge or a lawyer or a policeman. But for the moment, this seemed to be the way to get there. His stay started with lies. He had no living parents, he told those he met, and he was coming here because his wife left him and he lost his job. Smiley had a charm about him that made you want to like him. He could conjure up a story, look you in the eye, and flash his easy, toothy grin and make you want to believe him. He was congenial and charismatic when he wanted to be, but there were bursts of rage. He was the sort of kid you wanted to trust, even though instinct told you better and you knew he didn't trust you. One of his friends said, quote, Inside, Smiley was a real angry kid. He was described as belligerent. He didn't fit in anywhere. As a social worker would say, when you get a kid like him who doesn't give a damn about anybody or any other kid, you might as well hang it up. Smiley made a few friends at Covenant House in the few days he was there. Case translated to running buddies. One of them was a 16-year-old named Ronald Brown Jr., the progeny of a poor third ward neighborhood in southeast Houston. Ronald's street name was Zero. He had been on the street since he left home at 13 and became a prostitute. His mother said she lost her job and couldn't support her son. He was encouraged to leave. That is so sad. 13. 13 years old. Sorry, I can't afford to support you. You need to get out. I couldn't imagine sending my daughter out right now and saying, sorry, I can't support you. No. Zero was black, but told those he met he was half Chinese, and his real name was Along Brong. He fantasized out loud that he was a descendant of Chinese royalty. Smiley and Zero enrolled in drug and alcohol abuse programs together, 
but they went only once, and when they came home late from a meeting, they were kicked out of the Covenant House. They spent the night in a vacant house near the Westheimer Strip. It was August 1983, and Smiley was about to be christened a street kid during the bloody riot. If Smiley needed an introduction to the streets, Zero was going to give it to him. The sordid trip of Westheimer had begun to take out a strange glamour for Smiley. There were drugs and girls, and there were kids like him who were alone and had nothing. In a world where he couldn't or wouldn't fit in, there was a place for him on Westheimer, a place with people he understood. He forgot about getting a job, and his thoughts turned to what he perceived as the good life. It was fast, and it was fate. What outsiders found frightening, Smiley thought was thrilling. He was cocky and confident. He knew how to hustle a buck, and he didn't bother him that he'd been thrown out of the Covenant house. The first day he was out on the streets at about 9 a.m. on a Friday, Smiley and Zero were hanging out at the Stop and Go at the 500 block of Westheimer, the 24-hour store, and one of the round-the-clock street kids' stopping points along the strip. Cops cruise by but seldom stop, and when it does look like a hassle is coming, be it from stops or store management, the kids just move out of sight to the side of the building along Whitney or they stand by the Westheimer curb and pretend to be waiting for a bus. Kids hang out there waiting for tricks and jumps to pull into the parking lot. That's where Zero found their victim. Like Zero and Smiley, he was a teenager, but the similarity stopped there. He had a good home in a good part of town, and he had a car, a late model Jeep CJ7. Do you know what that is? No. I know what a Jeep is, but CJ7? No idea. We're going to have to Google that. Right. Smiley would say later he had nothing to do with the robbery, but the victim said otherwise. 18-year-old had stopped to get something to eat when Zero struck a conversation with him. The three of them got into the Jeep and began to ride with Smiley up front and Zero in the back. They turned onto a quiet street three blocks from Westheimer, and that's when Smiley and Zero made their move. Smiley grabbed the ignition keys and jumped onto the ground. Zero, with his folding knife already out, grabbed the victim around the throat with his left forearm. The blade flashed in front of the youth's face. It was so quick, he didn't feel it pierce his chest. He remembers nothing more until he woke, bleeding, in a vacant lot. There were tennis shoe marks on his face and neck, and he'd been left for dead, but he lived. Smiley and Zero thought they'd take the Jeep to California, or maybe just to the woods around Deer Park, where they could teach themselves karate and become the terror of the streets. It didn't happen that way, of course. Like every other grandiose plan for Smiley, it turned out wrong. They tried to rob a martial arts store later that day, but the clerk pulled a gun and they ran. Then Zero started bragging that he had killed a dude and the cops heard about it. Within 24 hours, Smiley was arrested and he led police to Zero. Zero still had the knife in his pocket with the blood on the blade. So he was bent on killing that guy. Yeah. I mean, he obviously thought he had done it. Right. Well, thank goodness he had lived. No joke. For 48 days, Smiley stood in county jail and learned what prison was all about. One inmate hanged himself during that time. There was fighting and scrounging for cigarettes and change. Smiley got scared. On his right shoulder, he had another inmate tattoo, Smiley, and below the number 11, his lucky number. A third tattoo was added after that, which was FTW, which stood for F the World. He's a real badass, wasn't he? Yeah, he thought he was, at least. <laughs> Again, Smiley told himself that if he got out of this one, he was going straight. He was going to find a job and a girlfriend, quit the dope, and settle down. When he was offered 10 years probation for a guilty plea, he took it. But Smiley was like a little boy who promises God he'll never miss Sunday school again if he can just get out of a whipping. Within minutes of being released, Smiley was walking down Smith Street downtown and headed for Westheimer. In the next year, the glamour Smiley once saw in Westheimer began to fade and life got tough. But it was still the place where he felt most at home. He got a job with his stepfather's business, but caused so much trouble among other workers, he got fired. He tried living with his parents, but the fight started again. 
He moved in with his grandmother and ended up hitting her. He didn't hate her. He loved her. But she started to lean on him when he got caught smoking dope. His probation officer got him back into the Covenant House, but those who knew him said he started fights there too. Without a job or a place to live, there was no way he could stay on probation. He stopped making the $25 a week payment and dropped out of sight. Nearly a year after the robbery in July, a warrant was issued for his arrest for breaking probation. In the months after his release from jail, Smiley continued his love affair with heroin and crank, a home-brewed methamphetamine made by boiling nasal spray. Don't be boiling your nasal spray, Amy. Right? <laughs> Smiley even started turning tricks on the street to feed his addiction. Smiley could shoot the crank and feel the rush burning up his arm and into his brain. It was instant escape, and while he was speeding on crank, he could still turn tricks, steal, or peddle the leftovers. Crank made you want to burn up energy. Smiley thought, Westheimer is the place to go. It shows you the good life and the bad life at the same time. You're down there trying to find some answers to your life, drugs, women, and living the fat life. That's all there is to it. If something gets on your nerve and you get really pissed off, you go rob a store and the store cries. Or you could go knock over a hobo or something. It makes you feel good. Smiley added another tattoo to his right shoulder, a unicorn. That stands for the last one or, quote, the one that remains. My dad has a unicorn tattoo. Does he? But it has my name underneath it. Oh. <laughs> I'm the one that remains. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> During this time, he lived with several of the people he met on the streets, people with no last names. There was the guy who said Smiley reminded him of his son and he wanted to take care of him. That lasted until Smiley was caught stealing to buy dope. There were two drag queens who perpetually saving up for sex change operations. There was a cabbie that gave Smiley free rides when Smiley found him a young hustler for sex. And there was an older man who made him a houseboy for a couple of weeks. Mostly he floated between the Memorial Park Motel and the Starlight Motel in the 200 block of Westheimer. Both places were known to the cops as a $25 a night flop house where prostitutes and transients and down and outer state where drugs were in good supply and up for sale. When he couldn't find any acquaintances or a trick to hustle for a room, Smiley slept in the alleys. That's where he met Charles, he said, behind the Kroger store on Montrose Boulevard. Charles said that he was from the planet Zubon and that he was here on a mission from God and that he was here to save everybody and that he was going to, quote unquote, expose the Antichrist child. Smiley says Charles taught him a poem once since committed to memory. The poem was, look into my eyes and you will see who I am. My name is Satan. Take me by the hand. I will show you a world of wizards and witches. That's where all the good people will destroy the son of bitches. I will show you money, women, and wine. All these things I show you are already mine. So be a wise man and take me by my hand. For if you do, you will die by the sound of Lucifer's cry. That guy's not messed up or anything. No. He's a <laughs> poet and didn't know it. <laughs> he sounds like a future cult leader. This is true. <laughs> Smiley still had the smile everybody liked, but the anger was building inside him. He was now a veteran of the streets. Quote, I know how it gets, he said. I know how, when the cops harass you, what you got to do. I know what it feels like when people come up to you and you're gay and they offer you money. I know how it feels and it don't feel good. I mean, if you got pride, it doesn't feel good at all. Every Friday and Saturday night, you go to the Rednecks coming up from Leaf. Is that a town? Mm -hmm. You got the preps coming from Friendswood. Pearland's coming down here harassing, throwing bottles at kids down the street, and that's not right. Where is Leaf? I think it was supposed to say Alice. 
Oh. Because there is a town named Alice down there. Oh, okay. There was money all around him, but it was just out of reach. Money carried by men in expensive cars who were looking for a trick and by kids from the outside who wanted to buy drugs. By September 1984, Smiley had bottomed out. He had no crank to sell and the cops were looking for him because of his probation problems. Vice officers were busting hustlers and people were starting to put burglar alarms on their cars. He was reduced to mugging bums for cigarettes. Things had to change. Something had to give. And it did. Early on October 14th. Smiley had two hits of acid or LSD in him and it had started to rain. He liked tripping on acid in the rain. Shapes took on a razor sharp clarity. Colors were more pronounced and bright. The drops of rain felt like tiny cotton balls hitting his face and gently penetrating the skin. It gave him the Superman syndrome and made him feel impervious to the outside. It was then he met Tim a 19-year-old who had just recently moved to Houston. He had come to the big city from a mostly blue-collar neighborhood in Belleville, Illinois, population 42,000. They had breakfast that morning in a coffee shop further down the strip and walked back together to the Starlight Motel. Tim had something to do for a while and Smiley lost track of him. Smiley walked across the street to the Superway grocery, hiked himself up a news box, and watched the rain fall. Within a few minutes, the Pontiac pulled up in front and Tim got out. You want to go riding with me and Bill, Tim asked? Sugar, he said as he got into the car. Behind the wheel was Bill List, a 57-year-old man with thinning brown hair and a heavy-set frame. Smiley knew him from the streets. He knew List drove along the strip almost every weekend and picked up hustlers. He preferred them in their teens, and Smiley had heard what Bill liked to do at home in the mansion in Seabrook. Bill had the money Smiley would never have, and Smiley hated him at that instant, partly because his wealth and partly because of his perversion. Would you like to come home with us, Bill asked. Smiley obliged and said yes. He did not have anywhere else to go. Bill drove the Pontiac around the block several times while the deal was struck. Tim and Smiley concocted a story that they were lovers. Tim was available for sex for money and Smiley was not. But Smiley and Tim both agreed to lean for a room and board. Bill was in a good mood. He usually was at first. They made a couple of stops on the way to the mansion. Bill bought Smiley a carton of camels and a sandwich. He talked about what he liked in bed. Smiley thought he heard Bill say something else too. And in his mind, he heard Bill say, Smiley, I know you're going to kill me. That's kind of crazy. Is that primitive? I think so. Or was it the acid talking? (laughs) Very well could be. (laughs) It was late afternoon when they turned into the quarter mile driveway in front of Bill's house. He'd built the place himself a few years earlier. Bill owned a trailer manufacturing business and he had prospered during the oil boom making trailers to haul drilling pipe. When he poured the slab for the 34,000 square foot building, that is... Huge. Yes. That is, nobody needs 34,000 square feet. Right? So when he poured the slab for the building, the neighbors worried that an apartment complex was going to be built there. He dug a reflecting pond the length of the driveway and used the dirt to build up the bayfront lot. He'd bought a financially ailing brick manufacturing manufacturing plant and made his own bricks for the house before he closed the business down. I guess that's kind of smart. It really is. Financially and business-wise, that's pretty smart. Yeah. The house was divided into two wings with an atrium in the center and a catwalk between the wings at the second level. He covered the enormous verandas with iron bars. The ballroom in the front had terrazzo tile from Mexico on the floors. In the foyer, a fountain spouted water under the apex of two staircases that united at the ceiling. A 20-foot U-shaped bar was at one side of the huge room, and a fireplace with a semicircular white brick bench around it was on the other end. On the first level beneath the entrance, a 40-by-70-foot game room had a pool table and a 20-foot octagonal bar. There was a 40-foot swimming pool in the three-story atrium and hundreds of plants growing from brick planter boxes. This guy had money. Yes, he did. A jacuzzi at one end of the atrium on a second-level balcony overflowed water into a fountain below it. There was a 30-foot table in the dining room. The master 
master bedroom suite upstairs, or Bill's apartment, had its own kitchen. It was the most magnificent place Smiley had ever seen, and yet, despite all the money spent to build it, it was hideous. One visitor described the furnishings as contemporary Holiday Inn. The prices of some of the wall paintings were written in magic marker on the back. That's because Chip and Joanne did not exist yet. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> he did not hire a good interior decorator. No. And just built this mansion and then threw the cheapest things in there possible. Yeah. The carpets were not the expensive type you'd expect in such a place. The three-foot electric circuit box was located in the living room. The central AC units were on the verandas. A steam table, complete with sneeze guard, was in the dining room, and the iron bars on the facade made it look like a gymnasium or even a prison. He had like his own buffet. That's yeah. what a sneeze guard is. <laughs> like at Luby's. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he had his own buffet. This place was big enough to get lost in, and Bill told Tim and Smiley to find a bedroom for themselves. Not much happened that night. Bill gave them some pot, and Smiley got lost in a marijuana stupor and passed it on the couch in one of the bedrooms. Tim was in Bill's apartment for a while. He then came out and fell asleep in Jeff's bed, which was only a minor irritation for Jeff. So apparently Jeff was already like a houseboy that had lived there for a while. Right. We weren't able to find a whole lot of information on Jeff, but Jeff had pretty much been like the longest houseboy that had ever lived at Bill List house. Right. Jeff Stratton had found a bird's nest on the ground when he met Bill List. Jeff thought that was a fair assessment. Jeff liked money, nice cars, and nice homes. He also didn't like to work, and he was willing to put up with whatever he had to to get what he wanted. Jeff would listen to Bill's harping and do maybe 30 minutes of housework a day. He also cooked meals, but other than that, the life was a big party. There was always pot in the house and plenty of booze at the two bars. Bill had a car that Jeff could use, and with the money Bill gave him, he could buy heroin. Jeff wasn't required to have sex with Bill, and a sort of conjugal, casual relationship developed. There was no real affection. They only saw each other about two hours every day in the morning when Bill woke up, whoever was staying with him, and Jeff cooked breakfast. And then the evening for a while after Bill came home from work before he went upstairs to his apartment to watch TV. Jeff had been there about nine months when Smiley arrived. Jeff figured he had last that long in a place where most kids stayed less than a week because he was blessed with the power of manipulation. So he basically... would have to. Yeah, he knew how to get what he wanted. Yeah. He was a junkie, and he would put up with whatever he had to. 30 minutes of housework. Yeah. So, And then have money for mm -hmm. heroin and a car to drive. Exactly. Jeff had never really been a street kid. He started running away from his Sagemont area home when he was 14, but always had friends to stay with and always came back. At 16, he became aware of his homosexuality. He did time in prison for auto theft and time in a mental hospital as well. By the time he was 22 years old, he was living in Montrose with a 17-year-old named Lance. Both of them lost their jobs and were about to be evicted from their apartment. Jeff thought about going to stay with a friend in New York, but Lance knew a man named Bill, and Bill would take them both in if Jeff did the housework and Lance provided the sex. That seemed okay to Jeff. Jeff said, quote, We were together there about three or four months, and Lance and Bill got into an argument and threw Lance out. It was over Lance not wanting to go to bed with Bill anymore. That's what really started it. It was basically just what, whenever Bill felt like he wanted Lance, he would tell him to come. Jeff said, quote, I knew they had been having sex, but I didn't know what they were doing and to what extent. Lance was real embarrassed to, to tell me what he was doing with Bill, so it took a while to figure out exactly what was going on. Bill was a really strange guy. He always felt it necessary to go to Montrose on the weekends and pick up guys there. After Lance left, there was a succession of street kids in the house. Some only went to Bill's apartment for an hour or so, and some stayed a few days. Jeff got used to the revolving door situation. So just kids coming in and out all the time. Right. Providing this perv with what he wanted. Exactly. Mm. It never really seemed to bother Jeff. He was working hard, having a good, good time, and had everything he needed. He was quite comfortable. About two weeks before Bill died, a 16-year-old boy named Joey showed up. 
Joey was a street kid Bill picked up on one of his weekend trips to Montrose. Joey said later he was hunkered over a pool table at the midnight sun when he caught Bill's eye. At 16, Joey had run away from his tomball home and was starting to get wise to the ways of the street. He knew that the sun was tolerant towards street kids, and unlike some of the blubs along Lower Westheimer, nobody was going to make him buy a drink in order to stay. The place had developed a reputation over the years as a hangout for hustlers. Out in the front across the street and around the corner on Avondale, hustlers on the sidewalk would talk business through their tricks open car window. Bill asked Joey if he wanted a job. He would pay $100 a week, he said, if Joey would come to his mansion and do housework. There was more to the job, of course. That was understood by Joey. Jeff and Joey hit it off right away. Within two days, Jeff told Bill that he and Joey were lovers. The sex between Joey and Bill continued, though. Really getting good until Joey started crying a lot, Jeff said. He wouldn't say why, so Jeff kept asking him until Joey finally explained. He said he couldn't stand what he was doing with Bill. He didn't know it was that kind of sex. Bill's idea of sexual gratification involved more than intercourse. It was a blend of sadomachism and filth, of pain and degradation. A witness to one of the sex sessions said he threw up afterwards. Another familiar with Bill's sexual practices described it as, he was perverted, and by perverted, I don't mean gay. So it was horrible. Yeah. This guy was just sick. Yes. Bill had a record as a sex offender in 1959, back home in Ohio, where he had another trailer business. He was sent to prison for molesting teenage boys. Sick. Well, that's what he's practically doing anyways. Right. Some of the boys said it happened after he promised some jobs and expected sex in return. A ninth grade dropout told a psychologist there he knew he was a homosexual when he was eight years old. Bill was <laughs> married with two children when he went to prison. His wife divorced him while he was doing time. With good time in prison, he was paroled and came to Texas in 1962. His children later followed him to Texas and tragedy followed them. His daughter was Deborah Thornton who was the victim of a notorious pickaxe slaying in 1983 by Carla Faye Tucker. Bill and his son, Ron, had a falling out, and Bill disinherited him. That is the connection. Carla yes. Faye Tucker murdered Bill List's daughter, Deborah Thornton. The year before he was murdered. Yes. So how tragic is that? I mean, yeah. they may not have had a relationship, but as a family, this young lady is murdered for basically being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. And this man, who is a sick pervert, who is just disgusting, yeah. was ultimately murdered as well. Yeah. And it makes you feel more sorry for Ron. Yes. Because he followed his sister to follow their father to Texas, right. and then he loses both of them. Right. Right. I can't imagine what he thinks of Texas. Yeah. Bill was known as a braggart with a quick temper. He was a very hard man to get along with, very hard to understand, and people just couldn't deal with him, Jeff said. Other than sexually, he was disagreeable, constantly bitching, and he would bitch on and on and on. He kind of sounds like a, a woman. <laughs> right? <laughs> Jeff said he didn't care who was there. It was his house, and whoever was there had to listen to it. After a while, I was able to calm him down some. Bill would get hacked off if he found cigarettes in the ashtray and if plants hadn't been watered enough. Some days he would come home in a jovial mood, and other days he was just looking for something to bitch about. If you did what Bill wanted, everything was okay. If you bucked the system, it was over. Bill always claimed he never made anyone do anything they didn't want to. He never raped anyone. He never forced anyone to do anything, but had these boys in situations where they didn't have any place to go. At first, he seemed real nice, and after a while, the boys started to think they got the fuzzy end of the lollipop. They could have used another phrase for that. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I've never heard that one, but Me in this either. particular circumstance, like, 
I guess short end of the stick wouldn't be really appropriate <laughs> either. So Jeff stayed clear of Bill's temper, and he knew how far he could push him. He knew that Bill trusted him at least enough to keep an eye on things in the mansion and make sure none of the hustlers who stayed there stole anything. He knew Bill wanted him to stay. So after Jerry told him what was going on in Bill's apartment, Jeff confronted Bill. He told him to leave Joey alone and that if he didn't, he was moving out. There was no fuss. Bill agreed. Joey and Jeff continued to party in the big house. Bill continued to make his trips to Westheimer. Both Joey and Jeff had been friends since the night Smiley and Tim arrived. It was no big deal to Jeff that they showed up except that Tim was sleeping in Jeff's bed. Then he walked into the room next door and found Smiley. He shook him awake and asked him what he was doing there. Smiley began to explain that Bill had picked them up. No need to say anymore, Jeff said. Jeff knew how the story went. The next morning was typical. Bill woke everyone up at 6.30 and Jeff made the kind of big breakfast Bill liked. Eggs, pancakes, bacon, sausage, juice, and melon. Mondays were plant watering days and after Bill went to work, Jeff made sure the plants were watered and the house was straightened up. It was becoming obvious that Bill didn't like Smiley, and Smiley didn't like Bill. They were abrupt towards each other, and that night when Bill found his cigarette had dropped out of the ashtray and burned his carpet, he threatened to throw Smiley out. It ended just as suddenly. They apologized to each other, and the subject was closed. I mean, really? You're doing all these horrible things to these people, and you get mad about a cigarette. On your carpet, that's supposed to be like a holiday inn. Yeah, the cheap carpet. Yeah. But after Bill went to bed and the four of them gathered in Jeff's bedroom to smoke dope and drink, the talk turned to Bill and the way he screamed insults at them. Why don't we just kill the old son of a bitch and then he'll shut up, someone said. It was supposed to be a joke. Later that night, Tim called information in Sydney, Australia. He got the number of a 24-hour restaurant and called and talked to a waitress he didn't know. The idea was to run up the phone bill. Afterwards, he said the reason he did it was because he wanted to kill Bill and if he did this, he would have to kill him or Bill would kill him. So I want to kill this guy. So let me run up his phone bill and talk to a waitress in Australia. That way I can provoke him right. to have to kill him. Bill woke them up at the usual time on the day he was to die. Breakfast was as big as usual. And Bill, who was generally in a better mood in the mornings, was even more cheerful than usual. Smiley thought, excellent mood. This is a special day for him. Even when Bill found Jeff's syringes and Jeff admitted to Bill he had been using heroin, Bill wasn't upset. Jeff figured he'd go through the ceiling, but he just left Jeff with a short lecture about how that junk would kill him. When Bill left, Jeff stared at the dishes, and Smiley went downstairs to the pool, poured himself a rum and coke, and lit a joint. That day, Bill told Jeff he wanted them to scrub some stains off of the terrazzo tile floors. And later in the morning, when Jeff told Smiley, the reaction was predictable. I'm not scrubbing floors, Smiley said. Jeff tried to be the diplomat. Well, you know how Bill is. If it's not done when he gets home, Jeff tried to be the diplomat. Well, you know how Bill is. If it's not done when he gets home, you know he doesn't like you anyways. I wouldn't push my luck. I wanted to leave anyways, Smiley said. I don't want to stay here. But before I go, I'm going to tear this house apart, Smiley said. It was the most magnificent place he had ever seen, but it wasn't his. It would never be his. And as if to rub that in his face, it belonged to a man like List, an ex-con, a pervert. There was an explosion in Smiley's mind. It pissed me off that an ex-con could have so much, Smiley said. He imagined List had been raping children there. He imagined List was telling Smiley to kill him. He hated him. To this day, he can admit to the murder easier than he can admit to tearing up the house. That's so crazy. Yes, yeah, so he really had some distaste for this man. Yeah. It was about 9 a.m. and Smiley started with the china. He hurled plates through the windows and then he and Tim hoisted a huge potted tree over the catwalk rail and dropped it in the pool. Uh-uh. That's mean. Hey, a pool is a pool. And when it's as hot as it is in Texas... <laughs> exactly. You don't destroy that. 
His adrenaline was pumping. He said, we're not going to go. We're going to wait here and I'm going to kill him. Jeff went to his room and fixed a shot of heroin. It rolled up the vein in his arm to his head and he got that familiar rush. His breathing and heartbeat seemed to slow and he felt the slight tingling. The kind you feel when your foot goes to sleep except softer and he relaxed. It was there, but he felt miles away as if he were only looking down on what was happening. It was during that high that Joey went to Jeff's bedroom and told him. Despite Bill's promise to Jeff, he was demanding sex from Joey and threatening to throw Joey out if he told Jeff about it. Jeff was too dope to be angry, but he thought he ought to be, and he resolved then that Bill would die. For different reasons, all of them were in agreement and they began making their plan. As they talked in Jeff's room, Joey began writing obscenities about lists and red ink on the wall, and this, quote, the problem lies in his head. Smiley took the pen and wrote what amounted to his confession, quote, Bill List is a very sick man. He is going to die. Smiley, 1984. So it was planned. Oh, yeah. Premeditation is the word. Yes. <laughs> the next three or four hours were a constant activity. Food was pulled from the refrigerators and thrown on the walls. Cushions were ripped open. Using shaving cream, they began writing on the walls and carpets. Tim wrote, have a nice day. The chandeliers and light fixtures were broken and a house plant the size of a tree was rammed through the wall in the dining room. Furniture was smashed. Hundreds of planters were broken. The lawn furniture was tossed into the pool. Lamps were broken. A glass top from a table was dropped off the third floor bedroom window and shattered on the atrium floor. The pool was brown with dirt from the broken planters. Laundry detergent was dumped in the jacuzzi. That's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> and the suds began dripping into the fountains below. They were literally looking for new things to break. The only part of the mansion untouched was a portion of the atrium visible from the door that led from the garage where Bill would park. He would have to come that way. Smiley broke off the keys in the front door and another rear entrance was padlocked. In the living room, they gathered what they were going to bring with them. A VCR, some tapes, Jeff's stereo, and clothing. There was no turning back now, they thought. They got Bill's shotgun from Bill's bedroom closet and a box of shells. The only thing left before Bill got home was to decide who was going to use it. Joey said, I'll do it, but Jeff and Smiley told him no, he was too young. I can't do it. I'm too scared, Jeff told the others. Tim only shook his hand. Smiley thought, it's cool. I'll do it, he told the others. What the heck? They fired the gun several times in the house to make sure the neighbors wouldn't report a gunshot to police. Then Smiley dragged a chair out to the catwalk, just a few feet from the top of a spiral staircase that led to the door to the garage. He laid the shotgun across his lap and waited. He felt good. He was high on pot and rum. Jeff got a six-pack of beer, went to the front of the house, and sat near the door, thinking. Joey came in and out of the room, and they talked about what they were going to do. I had the resolve to do it. After the point I decided I wanted to do it, I never changed my mind, Jeff said. At 5.45 p.m., Bill's Pontiac pulled into the drive. And he had no idea what he was walking into. No. Jeff began running for the rear of the house. He's here. He's here. Jeff went to his bedroom and sat on the bed, still feeling numbed by the heroin. We've gone too far. It's the only thing we can do, he thought. Joey and Tim went to the part of the atrium first visible to someone walking through the garage door and Smiley aimed the shotgun the level he thought Bill's head would be. When the door to the garage opened and Bill walked in, someone, either Tim or Joey, shouted, Hi, Bill! Bill's foot was on the second step of the staircase. It was in the split seconds between drawing breath and responding that Smiley pulled the trigger. List grabbed at his head and dropped. Smiley's head was spinning. He broke open the single shotgun and put in a new shell, and the ejector spit the hot casing onto his chest. The sting and the burn of the shell shocked him. He thought he had been shot, and he dropped the gun. Someone kept screaming, do something, do something. Hell, there's nothing I can do, Smiley thought after a moment. He's dead. His feet are kicking, but that's just nerves. The explosion seemed to continue echoing in Jeff's room. He rose from the bed and started down the hall when he was met by Tim. 
He's dead, Tim said. Don't you wish, like, if I had done all of that work to destroy the entire house, I would want him to see it first. This is true, because that kind of sounds pointless. Yeah. Because they were doing it to literally to make him mad. Right. I mean, that was kind of Smiley's point was, you know, let's antagonize him to go off on us so that we could kill him. Right. They, they killed him instantly as soon as he walked in the door. He didn't even get to see all that. Yeah. Jeff went to the catwalk and looked down at Smiley standing over Liz's body. The blood from Bill's head was oozing toward the garage door and Smiley was urinating on the body. It took them less than five minutes to pack what they were taking and start driving. Nobody was talking in the car and Jeff stuck a Tina Turner tape in the cassette player. I mean... That's what I'm talking about. Right? There was fear among them, but no real regret. At least for Jeff and Smiley. Tim wanted out. They bought him a plane ticket with a credit card from Bill's wallet and sent him back to Illinois. They went to the home of two of Jeff's friends and told them about the killing. That night, Jeff said, they went to Bill's business. Jeff had a key and took Bill's company checkbook. They ate at a Denny's restaurant and all stayed together in the same Holiday Inn motel room. I guess they were comfortable with Holiday Inn decoration. Right. Home sweet home. (laughs) Right. They went shopping until one of the stolen cards was confiscated by a clerk. Smiley got a new suit. Joey got some leather pants. With what was in Bill's wallet and what they got from forging checks on his account, they had a few hundred. They lost $200 in a heroin deal ripoff. That's what you get, kids. Don't do drugs. Plans to get away to New York were becoming muddled. Nobody was talking about the killing much now. They were talking about getting away, but like a dream when you try to run but you can't budge a foot. They were bogged down. The body was found the next day when Liz didn't show up for work. When they tried to cash that one last check at an ice house before leaving for New York, they were caught by an off-duty deputy who worked there part-time. The deputy called Liz's business to verify the check Molly was trying to cash and was told that Liz had been murdered and the check was no good. They knew then they were going to be caught. Smiley knew it when he wrote on the wall that List was going to die. And for Smiling, there are still no regrets, except that he was imprisoned. He quoted, I wanted something that wasn't in my life, something exciting. It wasn't that I was a screw-up. I was never a screw-up. It's just hard to live a righteous life when you're living out there on the streets because of the way things are going right now. Things are so screwed up in this world that nobody knows what they want. There's nothing to wake up to, nothing to look forward to. And that's what I wanted. If I do get out of here, things are going to be different. No more drugs, no more stealing, no more robbing, no more killing. I figured that if I ever get out of here. Smiley pleaded guilty to murder in Liz's death and was given a 45-year prison term. His probation on the 1983 robbery case was revoked, and he was sentenced to a concurrent life term for that. He is confined to the maximum security Ferguson unit of the Texas Department of Corrections. Jeff was indicted for aggravated robbery in connection with Liz's death, but in a plea bargain, the charges were reduced to credit card abuse. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison and is eligible for parole in December 1986. A juvenile court judge refused to certify Joey to stand trial as an adult. He was given what amounted to juvenile probation. Tim remains in Illinois. He is fighting extradition and is free on bond. The mansion at 3300 Toddville Road is vacant, except for a cat and up for sale. The asking price is $1.2 million. Which, we found out later, was eventually tore down. Yes. The mansion is no longer there. Uh-huh. Um, they did an estate sale, and I think that's where some of the information came from, that the decor and the inside of it was just really put together poorly. It shows that Albert Holman will be eligible for parole June 27th of 2036. He is still serving his life sentence. 
the Estelle unit, which is in Huntsville, Texas. You know so. what I found very ironic? Tell me. So he got 45 years mm -hmm. for killing Bill List. Yes. Of course, I'm pretty sure the jury probably went easy on him because of the kind of man Bill List was. Could be, possibly. Um, Carla Faye Tucker and her cohort, they got the death sentence for killing Bill's daughter. Mm -hmm. I just think that it's just kind of crazy. And there was no premeditation in the Carla Faye Tucker. No. Nope. Where in this one there was. Yep. But I, I think it had to have been a jury mm -hmm. that they felt bad for these kids that were... It was very sad. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really sad that they were quote-unquote throwaways and they found this man with money that would let them live in his 34,000 square foot mansion, but it came with a price. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He was obviously a very sick, perverted person and not that killing anybody is right. This man definitely had some serious issues going on. Yeah. And... He met his fate. Yeah. And so... So, for episode three... Yes. We are going to do the story of Joe Bryan from a small little town in central Texas called Clifton. Clifton. I know someone who lives in Clifton. Me too. Oh, she's kind of cool. Yeah. So. She's my favorite. Yeah. From Clifton. Yes, mine too. Oh. For sure. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, join us next week when we talk about... Joe, Joe Bryan. It's um, a very long story. It's probably going to be at least two episodes. Yes. We're probably going to have to make that two-parter. And it recently just made the news. Yes. And we'd already planned on doing the story. And then we realized it made the news. And so we're actually going to have uh, an update. That's right. We're going to have an update on the Joe Bryan story as well. But uh, that will be in the second episode. Absolutely. Because the first episode... It's, it's long. It's going to be very long, but we don't want to leave out any information, especially due to the fact that this update just came out, because you're going to want every bit of that. So Absolutely. when you see this update, you're going to understand what the case was all about. Yeah. And how it went to trial. So thank you all so much for listening. Yes. And we will see you all next week. Yes. And don't forget, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We also have an email and it's 1096, it's 1096 crimechicks at gmail.com. Yes. If you have any case suggestions or want to give us feedback. Yeah, absolutely. And you can find us on Podbean and iTunes. Yes. Bye, guys. Bye.